0: in the audience and
1: they're still talking. That's good. Very good. Well, welcome everyone this morning to Bible class of the Anchorage Church of Christ. We're glad that, that you are here with us. This is a unique day because of a pandemic that is spreading throughout the world uh, churches all over the country, in fact all over the world today, are taking advantage of technology that allows us to be together, to congregationally uh, commune with each other, but using technology that allows us to do that at a safe distance from each other, uh, while at the same time being able to worship God and study God's word together. We're gathered this morning for studying the book of Timothy, which at the congregation here we have been studying as a part of a series of lessons on 1st Timothy, 2nd Timothy, Titus, and then Philemon. And today we are in the book of 1st Timothy. So we're glad that you've joined us. If you have a Bible there in front of you, you might turn that to the letter of 1st Timothy, which is one of the books in your New Testament. About halfway through, you'll find a short book there called 1st Timothy. And today we're going to be in chapter 3. As we begin and take an opportunity to study God's Word I ask that you join us in prayer, that we ask God to come over the next hour and be our teacher. Uh, So let's pray together. Our Father, I have no idea of knowing who all at this moment is praying to you for this very, uh, making this very request that you come and be our teacher, but we ask that you hear our hearts, that you hear our petition to you to open This letter to us, allow us to hear these words that you have provided through your servant Paul so many years ago, but echo over so many years and amid so many different cultures uh, to give us the truth. And we ask today as we read these words again, that you give us the ears to hear, the eyes to see, the hearts to to know and to understand exactly what you intend for each of us to hear. God, be our teacher. We ask if anything is said today that is not from you, that it be swiftly forgotten. But if it is from you, may it become true and real and affect our communities. Watch over our world today. And We pray that you will come and allow your word to do its great work. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, we are studying the book of First Timothy. Today we'll be in chapter 3. But it's important to understand... Uh, the culture of the group of people who first heard this book of Timothy. And so I'd like to spend a little time going through the culture to which the book of 1 Timothy was written. As we've talked about in our class, Timothy is a, not a book in the sense of a book that you might buy in a bookstore or pick out of a library. The book of 1 Timothy is actually a letter. It was penned by the Apostle Paul to a young man named Timothy, Who lived in the city of Ephesus. And so you have to think of 1 Timothy the same way you would think of a letter. Uh, When you open up this book, you're reading somebody else's mail. You are getting a chance to see a very personal statement from an older Christian to a younger Christian about how to manage a church, how to run a body of God's people uh, within a specific community. It was written to the city of uh, Ephesus, specifically addressed to a young man named Timothy, written back in the 60s. Uh, and that doesn't mean the 1960s. It was written back in the actual 60s A.D., sometime between 62 and 67. And the main purpose was to uh, charge Timothy to manage the church well, to be a, uh, a good leader and to pull together a group of Christians out of a particular culture and teach them what it meant to follow Jesus, even when the rest of the world were following other gods at the time or other leaders. Now, this is a passage from uh, the first chapter of 1 Timothy that brings out that point where Paul writes to Timothy and says, I charge, I entrust this to you. Timothy, my child, he calls him, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. And then notice what he says, holding two things, holding faith and a good conscience. And so you get the picture of Timothy standing at the the wheel of a large ship with his hand on faith and a good conscience or the way the ships would, you know, uh, be driven back then, one hand on the rudder and the other on the sail. The point is that he's got his hand firmly on two things that keep the ship, meaning the church in this case, to keep it straight. Uh and then he says, "But those who have let go of either one of these have shipwrecked their faith." And so this charge to Timothy is that there are two things that if you are a part of God's people, if you are a part of uh the the gathering of people called the church, there are two things that we are teaching people to keep their hand on. One of those is faith, and the other is a good conscience. Well, this map will show you the different cities around the Mediterranean at the time that the letter was written. You remember that Christianity started, if you will, uh, around Jerusalem because that's where Jesus came. That's where he taught. That's where he was buried. That's where he was raised from the dead. And Christianity spread from there, spread to Antioch, spread across the known Mediterranean world to many of the cities that you see here. But right in the center is the city of Ephesus. And there are many famous people that lived in Ephesus. Paul lived there. You'll read in your Bible about Priscilla and Aquila who were there for a time. There was Apollos. Uh, later, after Timothy lives there, uh, the apostle John, we're told, probably came to live in Ephesus. And perhaps that's where he wrote the book of John and some of those letters, too. And so Ephesus sits at this critical point right there in the midst of the Mediterranean. And Ephesus had a very particular worldview. Now, to understand worldview, I thought it would be good to pause for a minute and just talk about what is a worldview so that when we drop into Ephesus, we can understand what the word worldview means. If I were to study our city, we live in the city of Anchorage, in the state of Alaska, which is in the United States. We are a part of a, a particular culture in the world. And wherever a person is uh, in the world, they live within a particular culture. And to understand the worldview of that culture, the very first thing experts would do is to study the behaviors. What is it that people do? And when we watch closely what people do, we are able to deduce from that their values, the very things that people uh, consider to be important. Because people will not do things unless they, of course, are important to them uh, and, and so when I study the behaviors, then we can determine what the particular values are. And if we study the values of a group of people, then we're able to deduce what the beliefs of people are. And so you see, it's like layers of an onion. I can't see your beliefs. I can't tell what it is that's important to you, but I can watch your behaviors. And if I study those behaviors, I can peel that back and determine what's important to you. And if I know what's important to you, Then I can peel that back and know what it is that you believe. In other words, what do you believe that's real? And that's what brings us to the center of the onion, and that's answering the question, what is it that determines reality? So when you look at reality, when you look at those things that you value, when we, uh, you know, study your behaviors, at the center of all of that is the very thing that you believe determines or controls reality. So what are the different options for worldviews? Well, if you look at worldviews across the world. There are several different options for what a person's worldview might be. One of the most prevailing worldviews right now, especially in Western culture, is the the view that time and chance control reality, that everything that we know, everything that is here, everything uh, that we understand is really a product of time and chance, and that if given enough time with enough random chance happenings, then you end up with a world like we have now, with people like we have now, with the ability to think and communicate uh, with each other like we have now. And so a prevailing worldview is that everything is here because of an evolutionary process uh, starting from a chance event followed by random chance events over eons of time, which leads to everything that we now see. And so that's one worldview, that everything is controlled by nothing more than a major uh, repetitive roll of the dice, but there's another prevailing worldview worldview in Western cultures, and that is that individuals control reality. In fact, this is probably the stronger worldview, and it's the thought that I control what is real, that I control the uh, uh, what happens around me. And so, when we're thinking of like today, a pandemic, you know, that's spreading throughout the world, how do we respond to a pandemic? Uh, the most common argument will be to appeal to people's belief that you control what happens with this epidemic. You, by washing your hands, you, by practicing social distancing, you, by keeping your area clean, will control the spread of this pandemic. Now, there's parts of that that are absolutely true, Uh, but understand what's behind that belief is, is trying to Uh, touch this worldview that you are the one who ends up making a difference without recognition that there may be factors that are well beyond your control in which you cannot uh, control overall reality. But that's the second worldview that individuals control reality. But there are other worldviews. If you go to other parts of the world and ask them, why is a pandemic spreading across the world? They would say it's because the spirits are angry. In animistic type Uh, cultures and religions, they would very much say that this is because of the work of evil spirits. Or if it's the work of good spirits, it's because the good spirits were offended or they were angry. And so there is uh, this pandemic, this punishment for the world because of the spirits. But you hear in that that the reason that's given for something happening is because not an individual controls that, not because it's a product of time and chance, but rather a belief that there are spirits that are controlling reality. Well, there are other cultures that say that the gods control reality. So it's not spirits in general, but rather a very specific group of gods. And this brings us a little closer to ancient Greece, where you've heard of the ancient gods and goddesses. And so there was a strong prevailing worldview at the time that this letter was written, that it's the gods, the many gods and goddesses in the, in the pantheon of Greece that controlled reality. And so the idea was to appease the good gods and try not to offend the ones who would have something against you uh, so that they wouldn't visit harm on you. But behind all that was this inherent belief that it's these, these gods that control what is real and control reality. Now there's also the prevailing view or the world view that God is the one who controls reality, and by this we mean the living God, the one God. And so this is what you find in the monotheistic religions, uh like Christianity, like Judaism, like uh Islam, where there's a belief that and a and a the world view is such that we say that God, the living God, controls reality. And that brings us to the Christian worldview. The Christian worldview says that is true. God is controls reality. But specifically, it is Jesus, Jesus Christ who controls reality. And so you'll hear uh, phrases like, uh, it is through him that we live and move and have our being. Uh, John says that in him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. And so you hear in that this, this idea, this worldview, that it is Jesus Christ who has control over all reality. Well, those are your options. For worldview, the reason I introduce you to those is to say that when we drop into Ephesus, where this letter is written, number four there, the worldview that God's control reality was really the prevailing worldview at the time this letter was written, and specifically, the God that controlled the reality of Ephesus was the God Artemis. She was a God who was the daughter of Zeus. She was the uh, daughter of Zeus and Leto. That was not uh Zeus's wife. Zeus's wife was Hera, but because of a liaison, uh Leto became pregnant with Artemis and Apollos and or Apollo and and so uh she was a twin. Artemis was born first, and this was something that was very important in Ephesus. Artemis was born first, nine days later her brother was born. And Artemis helped her mother through that second labor. The belief was that if a god was born in ancient Greece, that they were born with all their mental faculties, meaning they could come out ready to help. And so Artemis was born ready to help her mother with labor. And so Artemis was the goddess of midwifery. She protected Ephesus. She was also a hunter uh, and was a provider for uh, Ephesus and all those who worshiped her. She never was married, in fact, the story is that she asked Zeus that she never succumb to Aphrodite's arrows and so that she would never have to go through what her mother went through in terms of birth. And so there's, there was probably this saying in Ephesus that Artemis is the one who would bring a woman through labor safely. In other words, she would uh, deliver a woman through childbirth uh, safely. And so you'll see those phrases come out. Of course, Artemis taught women how to dress. She was the epitome of how a woman was to present herself. In the ancient world, we did not have magazines that would show how women of society were supposed to dress. And so they would make these figures like you see on the screen, these little statuettes. And this shows you how women of the time would have been dressed with their hairstyles. And Artemis was the uh, the uh, the example of what it meant to be wealthy, to be uh, successful, to be powerful, to be in control as a woman and so uh Timothy will refer to and you'll read in here uh, I'm sorry Paul will refer to in Timothy uh this idea of wearing braided hair and gold earrings and dressing nicely and and the image that should come to mind is what the people of Ephesus were seeing all the time Artemis was worshiped in her temple which was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world this temple had 127 at a minimum 127 columns it was larger than a football field, so larger in length, larger in width. It was six stories tall. So if you can imagine a temple that would fit within a modern football or a large soccer stadium, you get an idea of the immense size of this temple. And as you approach the temple, what would catch your eye first are these huge columns that were called stylos. Remember that word, these uh It's the same word in Greek that we get the word, you've heard of a stylus, like for a pen. It means a a straight column that held up the roof of this great temple. And then at the base of each of these columns would be the foundation or the buttress, the the thing upon which the column sat. And so anyone constructing the temple would know very well (laughs) what it meant to construct all of these columns or these pillars as well as the foundation. And so imagine... Uh, what it was like to walk up to this temple. Now this picture shows you what's left of that temple in Ephesus today. You can still go there, see exactly where the temple stood, and the only column left is the one that someone has tried to piece back together to show you this is what the columns looked like. So this would be the pillar, this would be the stylus that held up that great temple. But if you lived during that period of time, you can imagine what it would have been like to walk up to that temple to try to appease the local god because you believed in your heart that it was Artemis who controlled reality. You wanted to appease her. If you were a woman who was pregnant, you wanted to appease her so that you could safely come through childbearing. If you were a man in business, you wanted to appease her because it was Artemis who brought you your income. If you were a gatherer or even a hunter, you wanted to appease Artemis because she was the provider for the area. If uh, Ephesus was threatened by an outside force, you wanted to appease Artemis because she protected them from the outside world. The point is that they believe that Artemis controlled reality. So imagine what it was like for a group of Christians to uh, meet in a small home and to be told that Artemis does not control reality. Imagine how hard that was to walk away from the prevailing worldview at the time And say, well, there are parts of the story that may be true or help explain what we understand. But there's a greater truth. There is something else. There is someone else who's in control of all reality. Now, to threaten that would cause a riot. And so in Acts 19, you'll read how Paul, teaching that the formed gods, the little statue gods, were not gods at all. And that made the local businessmen who made these statues very angry. And so there was this huge riot where they all rushed into this Theater That you see here now. It's still there today. You can rush into this theater. You can sit in the stadium. And uh, in fact, I'll show you the next picture. You can stand right where these people would have stood. And Acts 19 says that the people of Ephesus were so angry at Paul and at the Christians that they yelled for two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And so you have to put yourself there at the very center of that theater and imagine that that sound, that overwhelming roar of a crowd over and over again in violent anger yelling, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And you can feel that incredible noise. And if you understand that, you'll understand a little of what we read last week. When Paul, writing to Timothy, said, that's not the way it will be when you gather together for worship. When you gather together as Christians, as a community of people who follow God for you, he says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings who are in high position, in other words, the leaders, as that we may live a peaceful, and then catch this word, quiet life. And the word quiet there is meant to be the exact opposite in feeling and in meaning of what the Ephesians would have heard in that theater. We pray that we may worship without agitation, without being restricted, without that pressure to stop, uh, without the noise of the culture around us. Pray that our leaders will make decisions that allow us to worship our God in peace and in quiet. And then he says, That's the way it is to be in your worship service. For men, he says, I, I ask that men in every place should pray. And so the response of Christians when we gather together is not that we yell in anger or quarrel or fight like in Ephesus or even in our world. Our approach with each other is to pray. And the men are told, You are to pray lifting holy hands without the anger in the quarreling. And then he says to the women, let a woman learn. And it's important to feel just how powerful that word was in the ancient world uh, where women were discouraged from learning. And you can imagine even in our world today where just that phrase would cause so much controversy uh, because women are not allowed to learn, but not so in the church. Paul writes to Timothy and says, you let the women Learn Specifically here, to learn the gospel. And notice the word he uses next. You let them learn quietly. It's the very same word he used before to say that quiet life that we are praying for, that we may worship without agitation, without being told you can't do that, without being yelled at. You let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. And so we get this idea that church, being the church, being this body of people who follow Christ, means being something far different than what it means to interact in our culture and in our world. So now that brings us to chapter 3. And I want you to imagine this. This is Ephesus. This is a computer sort of depiction of what Ephesus would have looked like. And somewhere in that city were Christians, people who had chosen to follow Christ. And by doing so, they had to turn away from their culture. They still lived within their culture. They were still very much helpful to their culture. And we'll read later where they were to do good, not just to Christian people, but to all people within their city. So you had people in Ephesus just like you who lived in a city right next to the sea, which was a center of commerce that received ships and cargo from all over the world and sent goods back out to other parts of the world. And it was into this city that this letter is written. So imagine walking down one of these streets right alongside a, a courier who has arrived on a ship and he's carrying in his hand that parchment. And he walks up the, the street, turns right at the theater, makes his way back into one of the neighborhoods and he hands that parchment to a young man at a door named Timothy. And Timothy opens that parchment and he's reading the letter. Now what we're about to read is from chapter 3 of that letter. And the question to have in mind as you read through the next few verses is what would someone like Paul, say to a young minister like Timothy about how to get a congregation of people to live in the midst of a culture that has a very different worldview? How do you get a group of people to live in a way that is different and yet is a light within their community? And Paul's answer to that is this. This, he says, is a trustworthy saying. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So let's pause on that word overseer for just a minute. That word is uh, where we get the term today. Episcopal. Episcopase is the Greek word for overseer. It means a person who has been put in a position not as an overbearing, uh, uh, ruler of a group of people, but rather someone who is responsible for the souls of a group of people. And if anyone aspires or sets his sights on being an overseer, Paul says he desires a noble task. Now, some of your uh, versions may say he desires a good work. And the actual word there is just the word good, kalos, and the word work, ergos. So he desires a good work. But the word "good," the word "good," there doesn't just mean good in quality. What that means is good in the sense of beautiful perfection. And so Paul says, if anyone desires to be an overseer, he desires a work that is a beautiful perfection of what it means to lead a group of people. You know that in other parts of your Bible, the term used to describe this uh, this role is the word "shepherd," and that brings to mind people who have raised animals. Understand that idea of someone who is gently leading a group of uh, animals. In other places, the word used there is the word elder, bringing to mind the idea not of just someone who is older in age, but someone who carries the wisdom of someone who has followed Christ for a period of time. And so you have these different terms for this word. But here he uses the term overseer. And notice that he says that if anyone desires this task, he desires something noble. He desires a, a good task. Did you know that uh, one of our presidents was an elder in the church? James Garfield, 20th president of the United States, was a minister for what was then, back in the 1800s, called the Disciples of Christ. And, uh, and he was both a preacher but also an elder in the congregation. And he was in the House of Representatives. I think he was elected uh, to the Senate. Uh, and then before he was actually became a senator, he was elected president of the United States. Only served for six months, because after six months he was assassinated. But do you know what he said when he took the office of president? He said, I am now stepping down from the highest office in the land to become president of the United States of America. There's a man who understood what Paul was saying, that if someone desires to be an elder of God's church, he desires the highest office in the land. Think about the responsibility borne by someone who serves as president of the United States and then put next to that the weight of responsibility of an elder. And Paul would say the elder bears such a greater weight because they're dealing not just with the happenings of a country, they're Dealing with the souls of eternal beings. And so what kind of qualities should a person like that have? And so Paul lists out, if you are picking a person who is going to serve in this position, here are the qualities they should have. An overseer must be above reproach, meaning that no one should be able to point to them and say they are uh, wrong about this or that behavior, this or that teaching. They are above reproach. They are to be the husband of one wife. Now, the phrase there, husband of one wife, is actually the phrase one woman man. Some people have interpreted that to mean that the, uh, the person who is serving as the overseer could only be married one time, meaning he only has one wife. Other people interpret that as saying, no, this is a list of qualities, and it would be odd in a list of qualities to suddenly drop in a qualification that is connected to marriage. Understanding the Ephesus Culture, even the the Hellenistic culture, that this description, one woman man, was a statement not only about marital uh, relationship, it was about sexual purity. And so the statement here is that someone serving in this position, however you choose to interpret that on one way or the other, um, what he's saying is that the quality that this person has is being a one woman man, meaning someone who is faithful to their wife. They are also to be sober-minded uh, or temperate, self-controlled. Uh, that word self-controlled is the same word he used earlier about women. You might remember last week we talked about the term uh meaning that beautiful control of the self. And he says that's to be true of the elders as well. They're to be respectable. They're to be hospitable. And the word there is a lover of all mankind. And it's so it's the word hospitable there is not just they have people over at their house. It's this idea of they, they have a love for all of mankind. They are able to teach, not drunkards. In other words, not given to much wine, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. And again, that image of the theater and people arguing and yelling is not the image of those who are to lead us as a church. Not a lover of money. He must manage his own, and catch this word, he must manage his own household, his home well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. And the word here, the way that phrase is written is a bit unfortunate because it sounds like he forces his children to be submissive. That's not what this says. It says, with all dignity, he runs his house in such a way that all of his children are obedient that they're submissive, that they are in line with what the family is doing for the entire community. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, catch the pair here, how will he care for God's church? And notice how he puts together two words, household, the personal household, and God's church. The word church there is ecclesia. It means a gathering of people. Now, ecclesia is not a religious term. The word church today tends to be a term that is associated with uh, either Christianity or with religion or faith-based organizations. But back then, the word church just meant a gathering of people. <laughs> that could apply to a political gathering, a educational gathering, a church gathering in the way that we think of it too. But God's church just means God's people gathered together. and And Paul uses that to right next to or places that right next to the concept of a household and said these are the same concepts the same idea and if someone cannot manage their own personal household they will not be able to manage God's gathering of people the elder must not be a recent comfort or he may be become puffed up with con- conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil moreover he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. And so notice Paul himself being a shepherd in this sense of saying, do not take somebody who is a good speaker, who is a new convert, who's excited about following Christ, and give them this most heavy responsibility of the world. Because instantly you will put them into deep water over their head, and they will fall into the snare of the devil. There is still that pull of culture. There is still that pull of temptation. There is still that pull of the uh, the things that have trapped the person before that they're pulling away from, that they're walking away from. And that takes time. And the longer that a person walks with Christ, the less sin becomes attractive, the less pull the world has on that individual. But in that critical moment, right when a person chooses to follow Christ, uh, when they bear that uh, that that huge burden of turning away from their culture is not the time to add the enormous burden of leading God's church. So you hear in that Paul's concern and care for people who are becoming Christians and who are just learning to follow Christ. And they must be well thought of by outsiders. And so Paul's concern here is that the people who lead the church are not just to be well thought of in the church, you see how he's saying within the whole community of Ephesus, when they look at the people that you put in charge or allow to help guide and lead the church, when you choose these individuals, choose people that anybody in your community will look at and say, that's the kind of person we want to be like. They are well spoken of by outsiders. And that's really the point of this list. Notice that each of the qualities of these elders are not people are not qualities of people that we put on a pedestal. These are not qualities of people that are unique among a group of folks. And because they are unique and there's no one else like them, we'll let them lead the church. Notice that each of these qualities are the qualities that God is working on in every single one of us. And so what Paul is saying is you pick individuals who already have these qualities, who have proven Having walked with Christ long enough have been shaped to look like Jesus. You find those people who have those qualities and let them be your shepherds. Put them in this heavy position. And that leads to another group of people in the church. Paul writes to Timothy and says, your deacons likewise must be dignified. Now the deacons is a different, uh, is a different form of work. It's a different role than that of a shepherd who's overseeing the souls of everyone. The term deacon, when you read that in your Bible, is the term minister or servant. Sometimes this is the term that's used of a servant of a king or a servant of a master. So any form of service that you provide to another person is a form of being a deacon or a deaconess. We actually have men or examples of men and women in Scripture who served in this role of of being a minister, of being servants to other people. And so this term is used throughout throughout Scripture to describe this group of Christians who are not only a part of a congregation, but who have been given a very specific role to take care of something that needs to be done in the congregation so that teaching can occur, so that the praying that we read about earlier can occur, so that worship together can occur. But behind the scenes, there's a group of people who are taking care of what needs to be done? Great example of that in Acts chapter 7 when a group of, of men are uh, designated to serve the widows in the community so that the apostles could continue the teaching and the, and the preaching. And so when Paul writes to Timothy, he says, your deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued. I like that term. They, they don't say one thing to one person and something else to another. Uh, they are honest. They are people of integrity. They are not addicted to much wine. They are not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold to the mystery. Now, I want you to catch these words. They must hold to the mystery of, and here you hear it again, faith and a clear conscience. Do you remember hearing that in chapter 1 when Paul said, Timothy, hang on to these things. Don't let go of them. And, And Paul writes to Timothy and says, you look for other people in your groups who are gathering there in Ephesus. Uh, people who have learned to hold on to these two things—that's who you're looking for to be the servants. And let them also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. And the word here, "tested," is a fun word. Uh, it uh, comes from a a word uh, "doki maste" or "doki mon," which sounds a little like "pokemon," but it's, it's a totally different word. But in ancient in the ancient Greek world or the Hellenistic world, if you went into a marketplace to buy or sell anything, obviously you went in with your money. They had no credit cards. You know, there weren't checks that you could write. Uh, you had to actually take the coins into the marketplace. Well, there was a huge counterfeit industry, and so there were lots of people who would go into the marketplace with counterfeit coins or coins that were only half the pure metal. And so there were people positioned in the marketplace who were call, called the dokimastei. These were the testers and they would take the coins and they would weigh the coins, they would cut the coins, uh they would make sure that the coin was in fact the metal that they said it was, that it was the proper weight and that it was uh it was something that could be used in the marketplace. And if the coin was appropriate, they said, this coin is dokimon. It's a, it's tested and approved. But if it was found to be fault or to have fault, it was called a dokimon. It could not. It was tested but not approved. Later, that became terms that they used actually for people. That person has been tested and approved. They're dokimon. That person was tested. They didn't cut, make the cut. Therefore, they're a dokimon. And so Paul comes in. He says, this is what you do with people who are going to serve in this role of deacon is they are to be tested. Do they really have these qualities? And if they do, let them serve. If they don't, a dokimon, the implication is hold off. <laughs> do not simply fill a void because there's a need for some service. The person who serves in that role is just as crucial as the work that is being done, and you do not simply uh, fill blank service roles. Instead, you test, and if they uh, prove to be blameless, let them serve. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, or the word there. It may be wives, it may be women, but it says their women likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons, plural there, each be the husband of one wife. And there you see that phrase again. Uh, Let the deacons be one, one woman men. <laughs> so each uh, each man has the quality of sexual purity, of fidelity in marriage. They are to manage their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. The goal of all of this is that a group of people within a particular culture are being taught a new world view, that it is Jesus Christ who controls reality. How is it that you teach a group of people to understand and take on that Worldview. You select the people who have walked with Christ for a long time, who have developed these qualities, and you allow them to be the shepherds. You put them in positions of taking care of the service. Do you see? It's a. It's. Uh, maybe today the word that comes to mind. It's the way a virus spreads from one person to another. Uh, following Christ is contagious, and I learn what it means to follow Christ by walking right beside you and in some cases following you, who have followed Christ longer than I have. And then Paul makes a final shepherding statement, which is incredibly powerful in chapter 3. I hope to come to you soon. Here's where you hear that personal letter. You have to remember, you're reading here not just a sacred text, which is a psalm or a a sacred uh, selection of Scripture. It is sacred, but you also hear the personal note. Paul writing to someone that he deeply cares about. And he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Do you see that word again? I'm writing these things to you so that you'll know how this group of people who come together, which here he calls a household, how this this house is to. I like this word, how they are to behave. How do you act as a follower of Christ in your town, in your community, in your culture, if you are part of this household of God? And then notice what Paul does. He says, I'm writing to you, so you'll know how to behave in the household of God, which is the church, the gathering of the living God. And what Paul just did is said, You are not the church or the gathering of the fashioned God up the hill under that huge canopy and that enormous temple held up by all those pillars. You are a part of the gathering, the church of the living God, the one who controls reality. And notice what he says next. This church of the living God is a pillar and a buttress of truth. And the image that would come to mind to the very first people who read this letter, to Timothy who read this, is his eyes would raise up and he would look just up over the hill and he would see that temple with all those pillars sitting on that foundation and he would look back down and he would smile and the chill would start in his head and go down his back and through his arms as he realized Paul is saying that's what our church is. It is the pillar and the buttress that doesn't hold a false God. Instead, it is a pillar and buttress of the truth. And then Paul breaks into song. He says, great indeed, we confess is the mystery of godliness. And then Paul ends with a, a brief hymn. This may have been a short hymn that was actually sung by the church. So imagine sitting in the church, which would not be a large auditorium. In fact, very much like today, it would be like many of you who are sitting in your own home right now. Imagine the church sitting in a a small living room or a small courtyard as a family has gathered together and they sing this song. He, referring to Jesus, was manifest in the flesh. Manifested there means he became visible. You could see him in the flesh. Vindicated by the Spirit. The word vindicated, considered right and good. Made right by the Spirit. He was seen by angels, by beings that you cannot see. He was proclaimed among the nations of the world, believed on in the world, and then taken up to glory. And that's the end of chapter 3. As Paul ends this chapter by saying, you live in a culture that has a worldview that is very different than what really controls reality. But notice what Paul does for Timothy. He says, if you are the church, you bring together a group of people who will be teaching other people what it means to follow Christ within your community. You realize that in times like this, it is the church, God's gathering of people all over the world who will be called into action to make a difference in the world. It will be those who follow Christ, who recognize it as Jesus, who is in control of all reality, not just this Life, not just what we can see and hear and taste and touch, but the one who is in control of all eternity is the one who guides our life. He is the one that we uh, pray to God through. He is the one that we follow. Uh, Jesus is the one who gives us our strength. And Paul says, find those people in your congregation who are following Jesus and who have these qualities and let them shepherd God's church into a new culture into being a light within their community. So we'll ask that God bless the reading of his word, and that ends our class time today. If you would, join me in a prayer, and let me pray for each of you. Our Father, thank you for a chance today to open your word, a chance to think about uh, what you have written so long ago and how it reaches right into our day and time. And we ask that you bless the reading of your word and our desire this week to now put these words into practice. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.